Hello and welcome to episode five of the Racquetball Show podcast. In this episode, we have Jose Diaz and Mauro Rojas on as guests. I also do a summary of the Reading Your Dream Foundation article about Marky Rojas and kind of his reasoning for stepping away from the game. There's also an instructional segment where I get into some of my favorite tips regarding the mental game. Hope you enjoy episode five of the Racquetball Show. I will be the greatest player to ever play the game. Anybody who won't die for it shouldn't be, shouldn't be playing right Get that ball. Get the ball. Welcome to this news segment of episode five. And in this episode, I wanted to get into an article that just came out on reachingyourdreamfoundation.org. And it is about mainly Marky Rojas and the reason that he had to quit racquetball. Well, he chose to, but also sort of had to. Uh, and it's called Reality Bites, the End of a Racquetball Dream. So Ra- Marky Rojas reached number seven on the IRT tour, but then due to just struggles with finances, he was he stepped away from the game. And it's interesting in that I haven't seen this specked out in a whole lot of other places, but Marky actually goes through his kind of profit and loss um, financials of what he went through during a year where he was the number seven player on the IRT, the International Racquetball Tour. And looking at this, I knew that professional racquetball was not lucrative. But before examining this, I didn't realize just how tough it was out there for players. And granted, I don't know how every player is doing. Maybe the number one, two, three players are doing a whole lot better than the number seven player. But certainly the numbers for Markey, at least the ones that he listed, are not not lucrative. They are... Uh, dismal. So Marky, his total income for the year that he was on tour, the 2016-2017 season, was $11,400. And that is, it looks like, nine tournaments. His sponsor head would pay him $300 per tournament, kind of covering expenses and everything. A quarterfinal appearance would give him 1200 and he had seven of those, which is a good result for that s- season. And he had two round of 16 appearances, so that was $1,200 per round of per quarterfinal and $150 per round of 16. And then he had expenses listed, flight, hotel, food, entry fee, gas, and airport parking. And so the total income came to $11,400 and the total expenses to $7,200 for a grand total revenue of $4,200 that year. That's what he was able to net in a year of professional racquetball. And obviously this is just not enough to live on, and Marky gets into that. He has now quit the game in order to seek a position as a teacher, I believe a history teacher, since that was what he studied in school. Um, And that doesn't really allow him to travel and play racquetball professionally, even though I would imagine if he were able to take some days off, he would still be able to play at that level. So Marky actually gives some 
some ideas for what he thinks would be things that need to change. Um, and some quotes that I'd like to tease out here are that Marky said he had often gotten the advice that he should pursue getting multiple sponsors and having the sponsors be a large part of his income rather than relying mostly on prize money. And while he said that is something that he's heard, it's not as easy as it might seem saying that, uh, have you asked businesses to support an athlete in a sport few people know about and even less know is a professional sport? Why would a major company want to support me or a sport when we have no national or TV coverage? Even though I did pretty well on tour and even won U.S. Open Pro doubles with my brother, it doesn't mean so much in a small sport. He also says that tournament directors struggle to raise sponsors because uh, they can't identify a clear return on investment. Current sponsors are those who love the sport, and we appreciate them so much because they keep the sport alive, but they are not external sponsors independent of the sport. What happens when they can, cannot continue donating their funds as sponsors? And this is something I've seen, too. So a lot of where funds are coming from are just essentially people donating. And while it may come in the form of what looks like a sponsorship or you know they're getting their advertisements up on the wall somewhere, Generally, these people know that this isn't something that's likely to have a return on investment for their company or their brand or whatever they're advertising for. They're just doing it because they want to help out the sport and they figure if if a ancillary benefit of money coming in could happen, that'd be the cherry on top, but they're, they're basically doing it as a donation. And it, to me, it seems unsustainable. Marky adds that Marky goes on to state that, for me, the atmosphere of the sport and tournaments need to change to attract new sponsors and keep players like myself in the sport. Why is basketball attractive? They have music, they have a younger generation playing, and it all relates to them. You must find a way to get out of the health club. A lot of players and fans like to drink beer, but we cannot have a beer sponsor. We need to attract a newer generation. I like a little what WRT, the World Racquetball Tour, does in this respect, but I think they could go further. As a player, I do not want to change the speed of the sport, but as a viewer, we probably need to. Will changing the rules hurt or help us? I do not know what it would be like with slower balls or smaller rackets, but that does not mean we cannot experiment. So I don't really have anything else for you guys in this particular news topic segment. Uh, this is an article I found really fascinating, and I suggest you checking out for yourself. You can find it at reachingyourdreamfoundation.org. And I think it's an it's an interesting topic. So if you guys want to discuss it at all on Facebook um, when I post this episode or anywhere else, I, I'm happy to get into that. I found this really interesting, and I wish the state of racquetball and professional racquetball were more financially lucrative. But that's a reality that we face, and I think figuring out strategies that we can implement to improve that situation um, and kind of crowdsourcing that that thinking would be awesome. So I'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, and that's what we have for this news topic of episode five. For this instructional segment of episode five, I wanted to get into a couple concepts that have been really helpful for me regarding the mental game. So it is four concepts that I want to get into, and they are feed the good wolf, process versus outcome, 
some concepts from a book called The Inner Game of Tennis and a little bit of mental visualization. So these are four of the concepts that have most helped me in the mental game. And the first one is called Feed the Good Wolf. And its concept, I think, is it's discussed in many books, but I found it in a book called The Champion's Mind by Jim Aframo. And what Feed the Good Wolf means is that when you're in a game or really any situation in life, you'll often have opposing voices in your head where one will be this negative self-talk and one will be positive self-talk. One will be, oh, like, great shot, you're playing great, keep hitting great shots. One will be, oh, you screwed up that shot, you're not staying low enough, you're not shooting balls well enough, you're not accurate enough. So you'll have these conflicting voices in your head. And the question is, which of these voices dominates or which of these will carry you through in an effective way or in a bad way, in a negative way? And it's really, it's whichever voice you feed. So you have the bad wolf, the negative self-talk, and the good wolf, the positive self-talk. You want to feed the good wolf, so to speak. So you want to continually, when you hear the good, positive self-talk voice, you want to take that voice and that's going to be the one that you most identify with. You, If you're hitting good shots and you're having that positive self-talk, but also having the negative self-talk, feed and continually voice the positive self-talk and suppress the negative self-talk to the greatest extent possible such that you're going to be more and more positive as you go throughout a game. Whereas if you feed the bad wolf, you're going to be in a more and more negative mental state throughout the game and less confident in yourself. So feed the good wolf is concept number one. Concept number two is process versus outcome. And this is both in your goals and in your thinking. So when you set goals or when you're thinking about a game, you can either think in a process-oriented way, meaning you're thinking about uh, the process and how you want to act, or you're thinking about your inputs, things you can directly control, or you're thinking about your outcomes. So you're thinking about what the final result is, or you're thinking about your outputs. You want to be thinking about things from a process-oriented frame of mind where you're thinking about the things you can control. So the way I like to think of this is in a racquetball game, being process-oriented would be thinking about staying positive or thinking about staying low, thinking about giving effort. Those are all things within your control. Being outcome-oriented would be thinking about things like hitting rollouts or hitting great shots or not skipping. While you can control those to a certain extent and practice those things, you're still going to skip and you're still going to hit bad shots at times. So being outcome-oriented is going to not allow you to hit on your goals and you're going to get into a negative state of mind, whereas if you're process-oriented, you're focusing on things that are within your control. Uh, And when you do that, you can achieve them every time if you put your mind to it. So the next concept I want to get into, um, actually this is kind of a, an overall summary from The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. And this is a phenomenal book. This is not actually just related to tennis. It's not even just related to sports. Um, it's not even just the mental game of sports. It's, it's a pretty well-known like personal development book at this point. So in the inner game of tennis, one concept that the author gets into 
is what he calls self one versus self two. And in this concept, self one is the self that does a lot of thinking. So it's thinking about what the best mechanics would be or what the best way to hit a certain shot would be. Um, and it's, it's evaluating your performance. It's critiquing things and it's applauding things that you do. And self two is just the doer. It's totally unconscious. It's not a lot of thought at all. It's just you, your body goes out and does things. For, for instance, if you were to stand on one leg and observe what your leg does in order to balance yourself, you'd notice a lot of kind of muscular contractions and expansions um, that are working to balance your leg, but you're not controlling every one of them. You're not consciously thinking about, oh, I better contract this muscle three quarters of the way up my thigh. No, it's, it's very unconscious. Um, so you have these two parts of yourself, and the more that self one is controlling things, the thinker, the evaluator, the guy who understands all the mechanics, that's going to mess you up because self one is going to evaluate and critique. And the more you think about mechanics in the moment, so if I'm thinking about how I need to um, straighten out my arm at the end of my swing, for instance, um, then that's going to take over what my unconscious mind does where my body is used to doing a certain thing but when I'm in the process of thinking about doing what I'm doing that will mess with my unconscious ability to just go out and do so in the book he teaches you that you should trust your body and quiet the mind and I think that's a really important valuable part of the mental game that if we can all master he'll get so much better results the final thing I wanted to get into is mental visualization. So this is a tool that I've found to be helpful. And honestly, I haven't done it as much as I've realized I should be doing it. And the way I've heard this described, because I come from a baseball background, and mental visualization is even bigger there where you get not a whole lot of reps in a game. Racquetball, obviously, you swing the, swing the racket a ton of times. Baseball, you get three or four at-bats. Mental visualization gives you the ability to get repetitions when you're not actually on the playing field, when you're not actually in the court. And another thing about mental visualization is that, like it or not, you kind of continually do it if you're obsessed with your sport. So even if you're not doing, sitting down for 10 minutes to do mental visualization exercises, you're going to find that you'll be visualizing your swing or whatever else at random times throughout the day. And if you're if the way that you visualize your swing or your mechanics or your game is in any way bad or imperfect or you don't like what you see when you visualize yourself, you're going to want to correct that because those mental reps, if you're getting bad mental reps, that will not only just stagnate your game, but it will actually be a negative thing for your game. So you want to, and it's, it's a learned skill. You can practice it, and you can get better and better and better at it. You want to develop the skill of mental visualization to get to a point where you're able to visualize yourself at a level of play even better than what you're actually capable of doing. And then more and more, you will uh, play up to that level. You'll, it will help you when you actually physically go out and play. Okay, so those are four concepts of the mental game. Obviously, there's a ton we could get into about the mental game. Um, and 
I'm sure we will be doing so at a later date, but that is what I have for you on the mental game today. Hope you enjoyed and can take away some of these things. I really think it's helpful to a lot of people ignore this, and if you can make this make a practice of focusing on these mental aspects of the game, you will be much, much better off for having done so. So to summarize the four things today, feed the good wolf, focus on process rather than outcome, thinking, and goals, trust your body and allow self one to dominate over self two, like Timothy Galway says in the inner game of tennis, and give mental visualization a chance. So there you have it, guys. That's four things that can help your mental game. Get out there and give them a shot. Hope it helps you. All right, so I'm here with Jose Diaz and Daniel Rojas of the 209. A couple of great players. Jose, what is your current ranking on the IRT? After this week, I'm going to jump up a couple spots. I'm guessing maybe 14, 15. So. Yep, great player. And then Daniel is coming off a – is it Daniel or Moro? What do you typically go by? I typically go by Daniel just because my dad's name is Moro. So yep. everyone outside of, uh, like – my schooling or whatever, it calls me Daniel. Sure, yeah. I think you, you see it both ways sometimes, yeah. and people aren't sure what to call you. But coming off a, a victory at the Junior World Championships, so yeah. congratulations on that. Amazing thanks, win. Appreciate it. Yeah, heard you played awesome. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, guys, thanks for coming on. Um, one of the first things I'd like to get into, actually, is what, your, what is life outside? Because racquetball is a huge part of your life's. Outside of racquetball, what is your life like? I mean, is, is racquetball take up most of your time, or what do you do off the court? I would say racquetball takes a good portion of my life, uh, just simply traveling. Uh, now that I graduated, I'm trying to do it full-time. And uh, literally every week or every other week, it's life on the road. So trying to adjust to life on the road and also uh, training when you're back at home and, and what works, what doesn't, and also trying to find uh, other ways of, of finding uh, income. And, and, you know, racquetball doesn't completely pay the bills as of yet, so um, you got to find other ways to hustle within the sport to, uh, to make money. Yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of guys. You know, they have to do something outside of racquetball to make money. What, what is that for you, out of curiosity? Uh, lessons, um, clinics, demos, and all that kind of stuff uh, outside of of racquetball, I just got my uh, uh, substitute teaching exam and all the paperwork process, so uh, I'll probably be substituting hopefully by next year uh, in January, hopefully when the, the kids get back from winter break. Uh, looking forward to that. I worked with the kids when I was, uh, when I was going to UOP, uh, University of the Pacific, and uh, love working with kids and also work with the, junior, the juniors in Stockton, the racquetball program there, so uh, kind of go ha- goes hand in hand with what I did in college, what I do in racquetball, and uh, teaching is is pretty fun and pretty natural to me working with kids. So yeah, awesome. You're, I mean, you're a super personable guy, so I can totally see that being the case for you. Um, Daniel, what would you say is what is your life off the court like? Um, for me, it's uh, I'm still in college right now, so I'm in my like second, third year of uh, being at a junior college in Stockton. Um, Beside, I basically go to work, I play racquetball, I go spend time with my girlfriend, and then that's basically it. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't do much else. I don't really care to do much else. I'm not yep. the type to go out and stuff. Busy so. man. 
Yeah, sure. I'm just I'd rather be at the gym to for the most part or with my girlfriend, so <laughs> Jose seemed like he had something to say there, but <laughs> he we'll, we'll, we'll he definitely we'll, wanted to say something. <laughs> we'll, but he held that in. We'll we'll, we'll keep it uh, we'll let that statement stand. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good life. Yeah, it's it's yeah. pretty it's pretty simple. What you know, do you what do you do for work? Uh, I work at my gym actually. I oh, okay. I do I work at the front desk. I do parking lot attendant, which is basically like a security guard. Um, yeah. So cool. Just to go off of the security guard, if you ever park your car at West Lane, it's not being guarded, secured, or anything because this guy is <laughs> literally sitting in his car, watching Netflix, <laughs> not studying what he should be doing, uh, <laughs> watching the cars, which he definitely should be doing. I definitely watch the cars. That's one of the reasons why my window is always rolled down. That way I can hear hear. And where I'm parked, I can see. Definitely everything. not. So I mean, this is just I, from... I, maybe not for you just because you don't reach the height requirement, but I can definitely see all the cars from where I'm at. Oh, I mean, man. There's been a couple <laughs> break-ins while he's on the clock, so... Definitely not. <laughs> you know, no, we'll let that not, go, not, but... Not, yeah. not for a lot since, like, I hired on, probably, so... Hopefully no West Lane, Stockton uh, car thieves are listening to the podcast. They'll know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll know where to go. Yeah. <laughs> So, do you guys all you guys all train out of one club? I know there are a ton of you play a ton of you guys in the Stockton area. Do you all train together? No. Kind of, sort of, not really. No. Yeah. Hardly ever. I I hardly see Diaz at the club. He's he's uh, he's mainly at the at his school gym. So, um, I'm I'm either at West Lane or I go to McNally, uh, or as a lot of people in Portland call him McNanny, I guess. So I I don't know where that started from, but kind of. I have him under. Na- Nanny L- Nally, Nan- in my phone for that's some reason. I don't know why. It's a terrible name. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, you didn't you didn't put much thought into that. I mean, that's what they call them here in Portland. That's why Nanny, Mc- McNally, Nanny. Or you could just say McNanny like everyone else. Yeah, but he has like four different phones and <laughs> McNally, Nally. Uh, just I needed something else. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard with Daniel being in school. Um, his schedule is kind of he can only go at a certain time. Then he has work, school, um, then he also works with Darren, uh, goes up to what, Elk Grove or Elk whatever. Grove, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and then also. Or he for, comes down as well, so. And then also for me, I've been traveling so much that finding time to practice in between, I've just been trying to figure out what works in between tournaments, what doesn't work, if I should play a lot or how my body's feeling and just trying to figure out that, that, um, that equation that's going to work for me for the probably the second half of the season. I think I'm starting to dial in on what I shouldn't be doing, what I should be doing, and um, hopefully figuring it out for the, for the remainder of the season. Yeah, and it is really important to get that tour experience, which I think it's, it's the first year you've really been able to travel full-time on the tour, so getting that experience and learning how to treat your body right throughout it is super important. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's it's a lot different from week in, week out, having to go out there to perform than to, you know, it, it's a different pressure. Um, as far as performing, it's like, okay, you're, you're not in school. Uh, you're dedicating your full time to racquetball. It's like you, now you you have no excuse. You either perform or you don't have an excuse. You can't uh, fall back on school like, okay, well, I'm going to school, and maybe that's why I wasn't playing that well. Now it's just like you, you have to yeah. You have to put up, man. Yeah, and you I mean you probably used to have somewhat easier competition. Now every tournament you're going to is tough, tough players. So if you guys don't mind, could you take me through what what your typical training schedule looks like and what what you work on when you train? 
Um, for me, uh, so I've, I've gone through like stages where I always lift. That's one thing that doesn't really change. It's just how I lift for the most part. Um, so I've always gone through stages with that where well, now one of the things I've been incorporating is more uh, cardio. Um, just trying to get my cardio up, which is one of the things I've always struggled with. So um, definitely getting my cardio up. So I, but like before I lift, I'll go and run a mile, mile and a half. Um, and then I'll end up going, I'll go and do my whatever I have scheduled for that day, whether it's uh, squatting and stuff or uh, deadlifting or whatever it is. I normally tend to separate those days just because they're pretty heavy. Um, plus, bef- I'm running before that, so just trying to put a squat and a deadlift after you just ran for a mile and a half is not a great idea. Um, so uh, for the most part, me, it's I, I train Monday through Friday, sometimes Saturday. Um, uh, I'll go see McNally on one of those days as well just to go play with him, play with Ryan Meyer up there who's uh, in Elk Grove as well playing. So um, that's my typical schedule is around based around that. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, m- mine is uh, pretty similar, uh, minus the McNally trips and Monday through <laughs> Friday. Uh, it's just been very inconsistent through throughout the season just because I've been playing so many tournaments. Uh, when I have a, like, we have a three-week break, which is nice. I'm going to be able to focus more on, you know, lifting a little more. Um, my workouts are going to be way more intense and uh, I'm just trying to get in shape because it's kind of weird. It's like you're in, you're kind of in racquetball shape and you kind of stay in racquetball shape, but if you have four or five weeks where you're not necessarily going as hard as you probably should, or that's, that's, that's what I was kind of talking about, figuring out what works for me and what doesn't. Um, so it's kind of, like I said, I'm just kind of trying to figure out what works, what doesn't. Um, for the most part, flexibility, conditioning, strength, um, stuff like that that I'm working on. Yeah, so what percentage would you say you focus on the conditioning part of the game versus what percentage is racquetball, you know, hitting and drilling and playing? I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand. Like, you can only do so much conditioning. You can be the most conditioned athlete out there, but if you don't have the shots and you don't practice the shots and you don't have the shots, then it makes no sense for you to run around. And vice versa, you can be, you can have the best shots in the world. You can hit the most consistent shots in the world, but if you can't get there and you can't sustain that for four matches to win a pro stop, then it really, you know, there's there has to be, I guess, fifty-fifty. Yeah, in terms of time, like yeah. 50% time, racquetball. Or 60-40. I mean, it, it yeah. just depends sure. if it's going into a tournament, if it's in the off season. It just kind of – there's a variable that plays into yeah. what you decide. Definitely tournaments in between. I think that's a big variable. If you got tournaments coming up, you kind of got to modify um, how you're training. Even, even though I don't really play – I haven't played every uh, event. I plan on playing more events this coming uh, new year, just – kind of set my schedule up better that way I'm able to go to more tournaments but um like with it like you when I tra- when I train for tournaments weeks of tournament the week of a tournament is kind of hard to train just because you got to focus on okay now you got to pack uh you got to string rackets sometimes you got to get racket strong whatever it is um that kind of plays a part in it as well it takes up time to do that stuff and wanting to train yeah you want to but at the same time it's a matter of can you because you got other things to do as well as not just with racquetball stuff, like at home, whether it's school or uh, work, making sure you're able to, get, for me, making sure I'm able to get those days off, stuff like that is, plays a big part in if I'm able to train the week leading up to a tournament, so. Yeah, totally, it definitely varies, um, yeah, as I've seen with my schedule. Um, what would you say, so when you do focus on racquetball, when you're training racquetball, drilling, or playing, what do you focus on? What are you, what are you trying to get better at? What are you working on? My weaknesses. Sure. Uh, 
What are your weaknesses? I mean, I can't really share that. <laughs> I don't want everybody to know. But, nah, that's um, fair. <laughs> you know, th- things that I noticed in the tournament prior that, you know, my opponent, wherever I lost, or even, even when I win, um, what, did, what did they do that made me feel uncomfortable or where, where can I improve in my game? Um, and really trying to um, make my game a, a well-rounded oil machine and be able to, you know, have different elements into my game, not just power, control, and just being able to... You don't have power. <laughs> well, that's my weakness. I don't have power. Imagine if I did have power, you'd be in trouble. You're already in trouble, but, you know, you'd be even <laughs> more okay. in trouble. You, you got to... I'll give you about six months. You're not tall enough. You know, the the funny thing is, like, racquetball is great. You don't have to be extremely tall. It's kind of an advantage being short because the ball comes down. But it's also a disadvantage being no, not really being short. I mean, so. we can play after this if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you have all the. I'm not sure you have your equipment. Doesn't your flight leave in a little bit? It doesn't matter. I'll kick your butt in um, <laughs> 30 minutes, and I'll be done. Remember the last time? <laughs> Wait, hold on, Dylan. You want to ask him a question? The Let's see. Yeah. Last time we what played? question should I ask him? Yeah, well, you should ask him one. Uh, who won the last time we played, and how long did it take for us to finish that? So, Daniel, I have a question for you. Uh, who, um, the last time you played, who won, and how long did it take? So, uh, the last time we played, I was actually changing up my backhand swing. Mm. Um, so, that kind of helped him out. Excuse? Plus, he had his, plus, he had his coach there. Likely my coach story. wasn't there. Um, so, working on different things. It's, it's a little different in a practice match, in my opinion. So Yeah, that's fair. Um, but I guess. Uh, I, I get, I'll give Diaz. Diaz has – I have not – I have yet to beat Diaz, um, like, in a full match. I've taken games off him every now and again, but they've come few and far between so far. So Sure. But D- that'll be changing. So Dylan, like, you like should ask him the score of our of our games and how long did it take. I don't think you answered that. <clears throat> I think Actually, I didn't ask that. Daniel, what was the score of that? The scores were around the zero to, like, two range, <laughs> and then they were pretty quick. They didn't last very long. It was not a good practice for me. <laughs> I, don't th- I think I had, like, two rackets left after that, that day. So <laughs> No worries, man. Yeah. We, won't, we won't rub it in too much. We won't, so, yeah, this was, won't be total bash Daniel <laughs> hour. <laughs> it was about 20 he, minutes. He wants to, though, because yeah, I, 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 know, keep, I, I know. gave him I can crap, tell. so it I makes almost, him sensitive. I almost gave him two donuts, but I just felt bad for the kid, so... Um, it's a learning experience for him, you know? You got <laughs> to teach the young ones what it's yeah. like. <laughs> so, Jose, uh, He's got as, time as, to do that for now, so it's okay. <laughs> as people can tell, just listening to this podcast so far, you're a, you're a very good trash talker. Does that come out on the court at times? Not at all, man. Not at no, all. I don't, I don't even think this is... It's not, it's not necessarily <laughs> nah, trash, not trash talking. talking. It's just talking. It's, it's just talking it's just in talking. general. I mean, you have to be creative. I, I mean, I enjoy... You know, I guess you call it trash talking with your opponent. That that's fine. It gives me motivated. It gets me pumped up, and I also like when my opponent, you know, says something back to me. Like it's nothing malicious. It's nothing about, you know, we're not talking about each other's moms or you suck or this and that. <laughs> it's like, come on, like what's up? What do you got? Like let's go. And um, as long as it's, it, we're gentlemen out there to a certain extent, um, and uh, you know, it's it's just fun. Yeah, but is there an element of trying to get into your opponent's head at all? Yes, for Diaz, it's a big one. Um, I don't think he so. won't ever. He won't ever admit <laughs> it. But my when my when he was younger, he'd play my dad all the time, and my dad we used to make him cry. He used to make he we used to make all of us cry. First of all, everyone in Stockton who's played my dad, I'm not sure if he's even gonna 
listen to this, but he would make all of us cry. He would talk so much crap on the court, cheat so much on the court that he would make all of us cry. And one of the things that got Diaz into the trash talking thing was my dad because after a little bit he started, Diaz started getting better and he started saying stuff back to, back to my dad and he started beating my dad and stuff like that. So my dad has a, plays a little bit of a role in that trash talking. Actually, he plays a big role. And, <laughs> yeah, I definitely attribute uh, Morrow's, uh, Morrow's upbringing um, to our, our, I guess our trash talk comes a little bit from him. Um, you just got to be witty. I mean, we, I was like, what, eight, nine years old, and this guy's, what, like 30, 30 at the time. 20-something. <laughs> 20-something, and he's just nonstop just, yeah, man, like, you practice all the time, and I just got off of work, and, like, <laughs> you need to go practice more. Like, I don't know why your parents bring you to the gym, and I'm just like, man, I beat you. I'm going to tell your dad, and da-da-da-da, and it's just like, yeah, I mean, there was, there was little, literally times where we were playing against him where, I was in tears and just like, man, I just want to beat you so bad. And <laughs> after a while, it's just like you got used to it. And, um, you know, you got as we got older, we got creative. I also worked at a hardware store where there's this uh, older guy that he was just really witty with. You know, I would come in and he would have a joke or have something to bag on me about. And, um, you know, before I go in into work, I was like, what is he going to say? I got to beat him before he says something <laughs> about me. And. It really got me thinking of, like, ways to think about what to say before he would tell me anything. So that kind of helped a little bit, too. Um, but, yeah, if everybody in the racquetball world, all of our juniors definitely need a, a Mauro Rojas in there. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the Stockton secret, huh? That's yeah. why you guys have raised so many great players. It's just one right. dad just <laughs> bashing all the kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah, Mauro Rojas. Wow. He still gets on uh, my little brother Tato. Sure. It is, it's intense. They it seems like it's like it's such an age difference, and they're yeah, it's, they're <laughs> no. It's, it's like that's his son, but it looks like they're about to fight. But it's like it's, it's, it gets pretty intense. Yeah. So obviously, you know, that's part of it. But what what do you think makes the Stockton area so successful in racquetball? Why are there so many good players from there? You know, I think there's something in the water. <laughs> That uh, no, nah, I'm just kidding. There might I'm, literally be something. I mean, in the water. we we have a really good, strong junior program. We have a lot of you know kids eager to get better at racquetball, and we were really fortunate and lucky to have three or four families that really pushed their kids to uh, you know become better athletes and also pursue a higher education. That's kind of kind of the basis of of what um, structured our junior program there. Um, and just being so competitive and, you know, having someone in your age bracket to uh, to push you. Like, I had Marky, Jose had um, Ishmael. Ishmael, and Daniel kind of seen all that. And um, I, had, I had his uh, – I had Diaz's uh, younger brother, Esteban, Steven Diaz, mm. who played yeah. back in the day. But he ended, stopped after a little bit. But I also had a cousin who played – another cousin who played. But that was – those were my competitions growing up, and then eventually they stopped, and I just kept going. So yeah, so it's just, just continuous push from from the juniors, and and you know having bragging rights, and just you know having good coaches there, and and people that are passionate about racquetball, and, and wanting to see the youth, you know, pass it on to the next generation and the next generation, and just keep that going. Yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely having that competition there is so valuable. Um, for me, uh, one of the things that's uh, so Jody, Jody was the one who was the original coach, basically, of the junior program there. Um, she was, she's 
been there for years. She's uh, got. She was in my corner when I won Worlds this past year, my first and last one. Um, but uh, she's seen me on the court when I got on the court first time playing. I started crying. I didn't want to play. My dad forced me to play. Um, and then uh, basically from Jody, it got into Dave. Eventually, Dave caught the junior bug, and after that, John got into it, and then we got a whole bunch of pros going into it. D- from Diaz, yep. Marky every now and again. Uh, Jose's come down a couple times. Uh, me as well, just from just playing all the time. We just eventually, like, okay, now we got to start teaching kids. And now it's gone to, like, 30 people, 30 kids a night, 30 to 40 Negative kids a night. 40 to 50. Wow. Yeah, oh, yeah so I'm normally awesome. – I got school that night, so. Sure. Um, but it's it's – definitely growing and i see the growth and i'm very happy for it in that in that area of California. yeah what do you what do you think has been able to make the community so good there why do you think there's so many players there especially i mean racquetball is like kind of dying in a lot of areas stockton's killing it yeah i would say uh passion passionate people wanting to teach racquetball see its growth um and dave ellis in my opinion okay yeah. and dave ellis is Dave Ellis will walk up to people. <laughs> Dave Ellis will walk up to any random person and literally start talking to them about just coming to the junior program. Any random random kid on the outside or something at the gym, he'll just go up to him. Hey, you want to come play racquetball? We got equipment for you, stuff like that. He'll just walk up to anybody. He does not care. And that's a big reason why I think it's so big. Yeah, and also the, the club that we're from is very, very lenient on letting kids try racquetball. And, you know, if... if very supportive try, of it. Yeah, they want to try it yeah. for a month. They'll, they'll allow that to happen, and, uh, you know, eventually they'll have to get a membership. But yeah. as soon as they try it and set foot, they fall in love. And most often than not, they, yeah. you know, they get a membership out of it. So it makes yeah. the club happy, and we get another kid to hopefully pursue racquetball even further. Yeah, and that's super important, I think, just having it super accessible to the kids. I mean, turning kids away is such a bad thing for the sport. And for juniors, it's hard to see, but... Um, Another thing I wanted to ask you guys about, um, you've been both involved with the Reaching Your Dream Foundation. So I was wondering, could you tell people a bit about exactly what Reaching Your Dream Foundation is and what they do? We'll piggyback off this, basically. Um, Reaching Your Dream Foundation was started in, in the Bay Area. Uh, Mike Lippitz, one of the guys who heads that up. We got Kim Randolph, yeah. Freddie Flores, all those guys there. Um, uh, basically, it's a way for... Uh, to help young juniors coming up out of the junior program and trying to get them to play the pro tour. Basically, it's to help grow the sport. Um, they help with uh, certain travel expenses like hotels. They give a couple, they uh, buy a couple hotels and um, help some of the kids on the tour. Uh, me, Diaz, one of them, a few of them. Uh, Mario Mercado is another one. Samuel Murray, I believe, is part of the foundation as well. So. Um, and it's not just the men's tour; it's the LPRT as well. They have a lot of they have a lot of help in it. And uh, one of the, re- the other one of the other reasons for the junior program is through the Reaching Your Dream Foundation. Um, they're very uh, very vocal about getting it out there, wanting wanting the sport to grow in the first place. So yeah, it's uh, it's called Fitness Forever. It's another tier. There's there's a couple elements that they kind of do and are trying to implement. Uh, one which Daniel was talking about was the the support for the pro players. Uh, another one is the support for the junior program and trying to help and trying to, you know, replicate what we're doing in Stockton to areas in North Cal, which there's certain phases that that are a part of that. There's three phases that we, we can t- kind of talk about that later on in this um, in the podcast. Um, 
but there's three phases and trying to implement the junior program in the North Cal area. There's about six or seven spots that we've, you know, transitioned that program to. Uh, and hopefully in the near future, we work with maybe the USRA or IRT and all the organizations to try to replicate that, you know, nationwide and, and uh, you know, hopefully share that success and bring it not just in Stockton, not just in North Cal, but all over and all over the country and you know get junior racquetball growing like it once was in in the 90s and the early 2000s yeah totally yeah and i think there's this perception in certain ways that reaching your dream foundation just pays for flights for players or pays for hotels and that's not going to be sustainable but this it seems like what you're saying and from what i've heard they're doing things that are intended to be sustainable and grow the sport long term yeah not only that but they also provide like you know, um, off-court uh, success as well, you know, um, introducing us to people, um, whether it's like finance or uh, just, you know, life coaches. And, and there's a lot of knowledgeable people that are in the foundation that have, you know, 60, 70 plus years of knowledge, experience in, in different fields and, um, you know, helping ki- helping athletes network with other people, hooking them up with you know, people outside of, of just racquetball. So that that's also a, another element that they provide. Yeah, great. Now, getting back into specific racquetball questions. So what what advice would you give to a beginner or intermediate player? When you see those people, What what's one of the first things you like to tell those people to get better? Have fun is one of the things that I would, I would always bring up. Even now, man, like as a pro player, it's – as a pro player, as – Playing high levels and juniors yeah. as well, so you, you got to have fun on the court. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're not gonna you're not gonna last in this sport. Um, you're gonna want to you're just gonna want to like eventually you're gonna burn out. Yeah. So have fun is the main thing uh, you want to do. Um, enjoy it while you can because you're only you can only be a beginner for so long. Eventually, you, then you start moving up and it becomes serious. It can be it can eventually be how you make money, how you pay your bills. So sure, enjoy it. Yeah, I, I and then as far maybe a little bit more of a specific racquetball advice, like gotcha. in terms of their game, what would I, what would you tell them? I think I got a good answer for that. I would say, one, right off the bat, get lessons from someone that's knowledgeable in the sport. Um, I know we see at a young age, there's kids that develop bad habits that, you know, they grow into and totally. keep until like they're, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old and been doing it for so long. Uh, watching videos. I mean, we live in a in an era where technology, you know, literally the world, anything you want to know is at your fingertips. Yeah. Um, the bunch of YouTube videos out there that you know can teach you how to play, how to hit it, how to hit a ball right, what to do and whatnot. So, you know, really focusing on learning the sport before you go out there and trying it, I think, is important. And making sure you're when you are playing that you're doing the right things and, and thinking about playing. Getting a coach as well just specific like yeah it's you can watch videos and stuff and uh practice and stuff but if like he says if you're practicing the wrong things you don't got something to tell you hey that's not right yeah how about just one like racquetball thing that'll help them today if they wanted to just go and change their game in a way is Uh, it that's a hard question yeah it's It's not Um, easy one i think one would Probably, but you can tell them footwork, I guess. Fo- yeah. Focus on your footwork because mm-hmm. as a lot of juniors now, what I can see f- 
from going to different tournaments and stuff is a lot of them struggle with their footwork. They yeah. uh, don't know how to move the right way to a shot, and mm-hmm. they end up being off balance or something and miss it because they're off balance, even though it was an easy shot. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, I would say footwork is a big one. And um, Diaz, you got anything else? I would say just really focusing in on, on practicing serves. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a big part of our sport, and it's, it's honestly serve, serve, return. Sure. So practice yeah. serve and then serve return is the other 50%. Yeah. So. yeah, I like it. Yeah, and then I think with the footwork thing, what people, some people miss, they think it's all about just having quick feet and moving your feet quickly. It's a lot about having, being really efficient with where yeah, your exactly. feet go and, you know, how you're moving your body. Um, so another uh, ra- more racquetball question. Um, who do you guys see as, you know, Kane has been incredibly dominant. Um, what, do, what do you think it has allowed him to be so dominant? <laughs> uh, Diaz, I, I, I just one. I think that the hockey background, like I, I, I yeah. think the hockey background helps him out a lot. Um, I've tried. I didn't even try uh, hockey in general. Just rollerblading in general. That was the one of the most hardest things I've ever done in my life. Sure. Like, just trying to figure out how to go, move forward with on skates was complicated. Um, so you got to have a lot of core strength with that and just to keep your legs under you that way you don't fall on your butt or do the splits for trying. I did the splits like almost twice just trying to roll it blade. So um, I think that has a big thing to do with it because, like you said, being more efficient with your footwork, that, yeah. I think that helps him be more efficient with his footwork because he knows how to move uh, yep. because of it. So that's one. I'm not – Diaz – He's got a lot was, of power what, as well. What was the question again? What, uh, what do what you think allows sense? Kane to be so dominant? His serve. His, <laughs> yeah. serve. his serve is just ridiculous. I mean, if you look at the guy, he's he's not in the best shape. I wouldn't say he's he's probably mid-pack, maybe. Uh, yeah. I don't think he's the most fittest guy on tour. Um, but his serve just you know puts him at a, such an advantage um, that it's just lethal, man. It's it's. It's hit hard. It's hit at a different pace. One, he's a lefty, so we really don't see many lefties out there. So that's another advantage. Um, hits the ball so crisp, so flat that that ball literally it, it glides. It's it uh, doesn't come up or anything. It's just on one one yeah. plane and uh, makes it hard. And he's really deceptive as well. So yeah, his serve. Yep. Yeah. Good answer. I think that's yeah totally fair and footwork as well. Um, who do you see as the next number one player after Kane? After Kane? What do you mean? Like, who, who dethrones him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, w- I would say me. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if <laughs> that, I would I like be able it. to Confident answer, answer. Yeah. anything yeah. else. Um, sure. I'm sure Daniel will answer the same way. Yeah. Um, he would say you as well. He'd yeah, say Diaz. Def- yeah. Definitely not. It's a good well, try. I don't care. That's <laughs> fine. You, you can have your opinion. Uh, but, I mean, that's honestly what we work for. And if you're not working for that, then there's no reason for you to be out yeah. there. Um, you know, I, I feel like if I go in there and I play my best, I, I feel like I can beat them. Yeah. And that's what you have to think. I mean, obviously the statistics aren't on your side. But on any given day, you step on the racquetball court yeah. at 0-0, zero, zero, anything mm-hmm. can happen. And, sure. Um, you know, if it starts with believing that you can because if you don't, then yeah, you're already you're dead. Done you're already lost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, who are who are some of your favorite players to watch? Maybe up and coming players or professional players who are just really exciting to you. I 
That's a good question. I mean, I, I really enjoy watching um, up-and-coming um, kids from Latin America. They're always exciting, always really athletic. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to say a specific sure. person. But um, just the South American and, and the way that they produce junior, junior players out yeah. there with the, with the resources that they have. And, um, or don't have. Some or, of them don't have much, well, that, but they, that's, that's they what I meant, like, make the it work. They have, like. Limited resources. Yeah, we got you. In some ways, their government have has resources, though. Some of them, they're able to get government support that the U.S. doesn't have. But some, some sure. do, some don't. That's that's a complete whole different topic. But uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the transition from juniors to the pros, those kids right there, the, those are probably the ones that, you know, okay, this could be the next, you know, Kane, or this could be the next person that's gonna give Kane a run for their money. I mean. That, you know, topic is always interesting. So um, I would say watching those players, like watching yeah. the juniors, um, I really enjoyed watching that. Enjoyed watching Daniel, you know, having to go breaker every single round, but uh, <laughs> eventually winning it. No, my semis and finals were only two games. Okay. Well, the, the final just seemed like it was like a, a tiebreaker because the second game was 15-14. So. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, I enjoyed watching Junior Worlds and uh, seeing how these up-and-coming players are going to, you know, make it on tour and and perform so yeah awesome there are a lot of good ones out there anybody for you daniel that you like watching any pros or anything um i don't like watching diaz <laughs> and normally that's because i'm outside i'll i'll help coach him or something or i'll help say things into his ear just like but watching diaz is that like, definitely I, wasn't Dave, the question i'm not sure if dave <laughs> ellis is watching but it, dave ellis i understand like your frustration when you watch diaz because the kid gets so he gets so lazy sometimes it's like dude why'd you tap the ball why did you just hit it? Huh. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just kidding, man. One of the biggest don't, don't divers out there. So don't, don't what, get sensitive. What's buddy. The, the answer? The question, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> <laughs> what player do you like to watch? Not what player do you not like to watch? That's um, the next question. Well, I already answered it, so it can't be the next question. <laughs> All right, He's predicting my future questions. <laughs> um, okay. For me, I would, I'd probably say Kane. I mean, I, I yeah. know it. everyone knows. Like, yeah, he's gonna win or whatever. Or like Diaz says, like, hey, yeah, yeah, it can happen. But for the most part, if he goes in there doing what he normally does, he's gonna win. Yeah. Um, but not. I don't really care much for the other competition. I just, I just like watching him play, just because I like to see what he does, how he moves, um, how he hits the ball in general. Um, watching slow motion stuff on him is always entertaining, just because it's yeah. like, uh, how does he do the things he does, and you get to see it in slow totally. motion. Is you get to kind of take notes on it. Um, so Kane would be one for me, and then I don't really know. I this I, I don't really know any of the actual guys on the tour right now. Like I haven't yeah. watched many of them. Um, I haven't done enough study on all of them to tell you who's my favorite. So yeah, I'm actually, one of the upcoming juniors, so it's not something for me to sure. Actually, actually speak that's to those ones. Yeah, that uh, juniors like just juniors from 18 is probably an area that I like to watch, and then also like the the 10, 12-year-olds that are out here balling and, and playing and sometimes even beating the 14- and 16-year-olds, which, yeah. which is crazy. Um, watching the little ones is, is also entertaining. Um, yeah, watching the little ones and then the up-and-coming. Got it. Um, and then one last question because I want to be respectful of your time, and I know Diaz has to catch a flight soon. Um, the sport, how would you go about, what are some things you think the sport could do to grow? And Diaz, I know you're you're involved in a way on the USRA board. Um, 
but what do you guys think could be some things the sport could do in order to just grow as a sport? Um, you know, it's been said junior programs, college. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know if there's a one specific area where you start the growth. I think it's there's different areas where you start all at once, whether it's college, whether it's juniors. Um, I'm really passionate about juniors right now just because we have like 50-plus kids. Um, my main goal in, in racquetball is to somehow help propel that junior program that we have and have created in Stockton and, you know, work with you. Since I am tied with USRA, trying to implement what USRA is doing and at the same time reaching your dream foundation is doing and, and to all work in, um, you know, as one to promote racquetball because that's the that's the goal in, in promoting racquetball. So if we have more kids, more kids playing, one, it just helps grow the sport. Uh, manufacturers are doing a lot better in return, helps the pro game, um, and just, you know, provides more more money for everyone. Um, and uh, also, you know, introduces the new people to the sport of racquetball, which is a great sport, and we need to get it back to, to where it was in the 80s and 90s. Even bigger yeah. than that. Yeah, definitely bigger. can because with all the all the technology we have now, it's it can yeah. it can be way bigger than it, what it was. So um, I'd have to agree with you as it, it doesn't start in one specific spot. It's um, but I would say that uh, it does have to it does have to be a collective thing. It, it has to, with all the major corporations in the sport, they have to come together to do something. Um, whether it's some of those people that are up there, that are up in the higher division, step down. That way they can uh, – because in, in all reality, there are a few people in the sport that don't care. Like, they're just in it for them. Um, and I, I see it. That's one of the things that is I, – like, I, I, I see it myself, and I know that, hey, if that continues, I probably won't be in the sport very long. Um, just because, it, like I said, like Dia says, it, it won't pay the bills. And it's yeah. one of the main reasons why my cousins aren't in the sport is anymore. Yeah. They're retired already, so – and they're we're going into the prime of their career, but so. yeah, it's tough to see. I mean, Jose and Marky yeah. doing phenomenally on the tour and not able to continue because of money. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but yeah, they, it's got to be a collective thing. It's got to be yeah. all every single one of them. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily mind the two men's tours um, because I, I think it's it gives us a a good option of which one we want to go to. Um, however, if it's on the same weekend, then I kind of do find it an issue because it's now you're taking now players have to pick between going to one or the other, and just that kind of com- that kind of makes a conflict with it. So that sure, that totally. I think I think for growth though, I, I don't necessarily think much should be done in the in the pro game because I mean if you go to if I go to the mall, there's not gonna be anybody in Stockton that would be able to recognize me and be like, oh, man, we've seen you on, you know, on TV or something. Yeah. Like, it's, just, it's just not a common thing. Um, so I think focusing on juniors and that kind of stuff is is uh, much more important. Um, and, um, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good answers. I appreciate it. Well, guys, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Jose and Daniel, it was awesome. Nice. Thanks, Thanks for chatting for with me. Thanks, Thanks for, for having ha- us. Oh, just one real quick. Yeah. I mean, uh, one last thing. I, f- I was trying to say this earlier, but one thing that can really help grow the sport is is everyone that plays. You know, everyone that plays should be you know promote promoting 
right? Yeah. Using well, hashtags. Using hashtags. I mean, <laughs> social media. I mean, just just even at the club or like if you ever played racquetball before, yeah. just telling your kids about it, just telling your neighbors about it, just telling, you know, at a teacher parent conference or whatever and, and sure. promoting the sport. We should all be promoting the sport. There's, you know, if we get one or two people to play, everyone that's out there, that's doubling our numbers. So, yeah. So if you have someone that plays or know someone that doesn't play, get, get a racket in their hand and, um, you know, get people to play racquetball. Awesome. Yeah. Promote the sport, everybody. All right. Yep. Jose and Daniel, thanks so much for coming on, guys. Yeah, All right, man. Have a good one. You too. All right, thank you for listening to episode five of the Racquetball Show. This time, we don't have a mailbag segment. If you'd like to get questions answered in the future, though, you can send questions to dylan at racquetballshow.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at racquetballshow.com. Email those to me, and I'll get them answered. Hopefully, we can have Prigo or some other guest on to help answer mailbag questions. That'd be fun. But send in anything you're wondering about in the racquetball realm. All right, thanks for listening, everybody.